Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about access to cancer care with Dr. Amy Davidoff. Dr. Davidoff is a senior research scientist in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Yale School of Public Health. And Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Davidoff, you think of yourself I think, uh, as a health economist. Can you explain what that is? Well, as an economist, um, I'm interested in um, how uh, incentives that are built into systems in, in healthcare, particularly healthcare delivery system. So those incentives might be how providers are paid for the care they deliver, or how uh, insurers are paid, or how uh, the kind of uh, out-of-pocket payments that patients have to pay, and how uh, the way that these incentives that people face influence uh, whether they seek care, uh, the kind of care that people receive, um, and then ultimately it has an impact on the outcomes of, of care uh, and also has an impact on individuals in terms of their out-of-pocket spending and the kind of burdens that they and their family face associated with that treatment. So how do you study the impact? First of all, how do you measure the incentives? And how do you measure how that makes people behave? I mean, I guess I could guess that if I had a high out-of-pocket cost, I might not want to see a doctor for certainly something minor. But how does that work? Well, okay. How do we study it? Um, so there are various ways that somebody might study incentives. First, how do we figure out what those incentives look like? Sure. That's based pretty much by keeping tabs on the way that uh, policies are designed. So when uh, sort of out-of-pocket cost sharing is capped or copayments are changed or uh, the Medicare program changes the way that it pays doctors or something. Those are policy changes that my colleagues and I try to keep uh, tabs on uh, as they're happening. Uh, and then over time, um, I work very closely with uh, various clinicians who may give me insights into how some of these policies actually affect the care that they provide on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that helps us to identify question areas that should be addressed. Um, now, the how do we actually study the impacts? That is done on a number of uh, levels. One can be uh, very sort of micro, small kinds of studies where you're actually interviewing clinicians or patients uh, on their experience with uh, out-of-pocket costs. So sometimes people will do small surveys uh, of patients or do focus groups and interview them in depth. 
the kind of work that I have tended to do uses larger data sets. So there are a large number of surveys that the federal government undertakes of populations or of certain subgroups where they ask questions about the individual and their family, um, their insurance coverage, uh, their health status, the kinds of care that they receive, and out-of-pocket uh, burdens that they face. And then we might use that survey data uh, to analyze some of these questions. We might look at changes in the responses to those questions over time. Um, so as a new policy is implemented, how that affects people's responses. Um, or we might um, look at different subgroups of patients depending on how we think that might be affected. We also do a lot of work with what we call administrative data, which is data that uh, is collected as for some other purpose, like paying insurance claims. And we use insurance claims a lot in our research. They give us a lot of information on patients' characteristics, health status, um, which we get from diagnosis codes that are on the claims. A, a claim is like the hospital bills an insurance company for a procedure like an MRI or something? Is that yes. a claim? Yes. And for, for all services that are paid by insurers, some provider is submitting a claim to the insurer mm -hmm. uh, so that they can pay it. In the old days, it used to be paper claims. Uh, now it's all electronic. And so those electronic claims can be sort of assembled in a big research database uh, that we researchers can use. So there's a big tally for each patient of all the claims that have been made in, on their insurance? It can be at the tally level, but it's actually in for each individual service that patients receive, there would be a claim that is issued uh, and paid or not paid, but uh, we can use that detailed information. So we have information for cancer patients when they receive a diagnostic test, uh, when they receive uh, cancer screening first, I guess, um, a diagnostic test. Uh, when they have surgery, we know what kind of surgical procedure it was. Uh, we know how long they stayed in the hospital. If it was inpatient, we know where it was provided, by what type of provider. Um, when um, they get chemotherapy, we know what kind of drugs they're getting, um, how much they're getting, how long they're getting, at what dates of service. I should stress, though, that the research data that we have uh, tends to be totally stripped of all identifiers for individual patients. So we're never looking at what happens to an individual. And we also have a lot of protections in place to protect the confidentiality of individuals whose data might be in that data set. So we don't have to worry about turning off our cell phones when we go into the office because Big Brother is soaking up stuff about us. It's not like that. That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. Well, I, you know, there's so much paranoia nowadays about these big data things in Facebook and so on. Um, but this isn't like that at all, really. We try to make sure that it's not. <laughs> <laughs> we and uh, the institution and the, the federal government all work very hard to make sure that all of that uh, information is is kept confidential. So could you give us an example of some policy change or policy consideration uh, that might affect cancer patients that you either would like to study or have studied and how you sort of went about that or would go about that? Well, a 
big focus is on uh, the cost of prescription medications um, in cancer care. Traditionally, a lot of the chemotherapy was IV or injected chemotherapy, and it was all covered under, usually under the medical benefit uh, that someone might have in their insurance plan. Okay. Uh, but uh, prescription drugs, oral chemotherapies, would be covered under a different mechanism. For example, if anyone has Medicare, uh, any IV chemotherapy would be covered under their Part B benefit, which covers doctor's visits, office visits, diagnostic testing, all the outpatient things. Part A is hospitalization? For the most part, yes. Gotcha. But if they their uh, physician wants to prescribe an oral chemotherapy, they would have to have prescription drug coverage to cover that, help to, pay, to help pay for that, particularly if it's an expensive drug, which uh, many of them are now. Um, so people with Medicare might have uh, purchased a Part D plan, which is the prescription drug benefit. Through Medicare. Through Medicare. Mm -hmm. uh, that's been available since 2006. Uh, and now covers probably about 65% of all people with Medicare. Um, if you don't have Part D, uh, you may not have it because you were lucky enough to have an employer who provided health insurance for you when you were actively working. And then when you retired, there might be a retiree plan mm. uh, that would cover both, sort of supplement what Medicare provides on the inpatient and outpatient side, but also includes prescription drug coverage uh, and so that you don't need to buy a Part D plan. And some people have things like AARP or other kind of insurance, right, secondary insurance that sometimes has a prescription plan? Well, AARP has both what's called Medigap, mm -hmm. which provides sort of that supplement on the Part A and B side, but no longer covers any outpatient prescription drugs. Oh, wow. They used to before 2006. And now, if you want that, you have to also have a Part D plan. I see. Now, many of the Part D plans are actually also come through AARP. <laughs> so <laughs> they've got you coming and going. <laughs> okay. So, so your point is that uh, so people may uh, be prescribed this expensive oral chemotherapy, which is now coming under this Part D or prescription plan. Yes. And so what does one look at there? To, because there's a big out-of-pocket there? Or? Yes. Yes. That's been one of the big issues, particularly with the Part D program. Um, there used to be this donut hole that people would fall into. Yes. Yes. So that when Part D was designed, it was designed with uh, sort of a small deductible and then some co-payment or co-insurance for the first part of your spending during the year, um, and that was several thousand dollars. But then when you got to a certain limit, which they thought that very few people would get to, there was something called the donut hole or coverage gap, where there was basically no coverage from the Part D plan, and you had to pay out of pocket for another several thousand dollars. Then if you reached what was called the catastrophic limit, uh, you had already paid so much out of pocket, then you would only have to pay 5% of the cost of your drugs going forward until you reached the end of December. And then as we all know with insurance, you get to a new insurance year and all the deductibles and everything starts Start up all again, over again. Yeah. So the donut hole 
was not a problem for most people when Part D started. But over the last decade, certainly, and, and more so, increasingly so, uh, in the past few years, there are now some oral chemotherapy drugs that can be very effective for some people and are drugs that, in some cases, may need to be taken for the rest of someone's life. Hmm. Um, and these can be very expensive. And so that if you start out in January and you've got Part D coverage and you fill a prescription for one of these drugs, it may actually bring you all the way through your initial coverage zone, your coverage gap, and into the um, catastrophic zone, where you'll continue to have to pay quite a bit each month out of pocket uh, until de December and then start all over again in January. So one of the things that people have looked at is just how the uh, fact that there is this donut hole when you have very expensive uh, cancer drugs, how that affects whether people initiate a certain drug that's recommended or how long it takes before they line up their in home or internal financing to be able to start affording it, um, and then how that affects their ability to persist with the therapy over time, and even whether they sort of delay refills or uh, split pills or skip doses, something that we call cost-related non-adherence. Mm. Uh, so there have been a lot of studies, uh, some that I've been involved in, where we've looked at how the fact that there is that donut hole affects uh, use of cancer medications and then how it also affects the out-of-pocket spending that someone with cancer faces at the end of the year. Wow. Well, this is really fascinating, Dr. Davidoff, and I want to take this up in the second half of the show. But right now, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about access to cancer care with Dr. Amy Davidoff. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Amy Davidoff. We've been discussing access to cancer care and how health economists can understand, if I'm getting this right, um, how various policy changes 
uh, change the way people use their medical coverage because of the financial incentives. Do I have that more or less right? More or less, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little complicated for me. And I, um, in the spirit of disclosure, I have to say that I'm probably one of the few uh, people who graduated with a bachelor's degree from Yale College without having ever in high school or college taken any social sciences. So, uh, so you'll excuse my relative ignorance about this. But I do know for my patients that uh, just at the bedside that uh, these seem to be real problems. And, uh, you know, we prescribe, uh, and for my leukemia patients, some rather expensive uh, oral antibiotics and less just not even leave aside the issue of oral chemotherapy, but oral antibiotics, which are very important to protect these patients from fungal infections. And when patients hear about their copay, they really believe they, they can't manage it. And yet, if they don't take them, they're likely to die of a fungal infection. I mean, this is a, it's almost unconscionable, uh, the hoops that we seem to make patients jump through that they they never, I don't think any of them ever expected uh, that their insurance, these are, these are insured patients, uh, you know, their insurance wouldn't prove adequate for something that's really essential for them to fight their cancer. I mean, it's a little crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. I think it is important to say at some point in our discussion that uh, the cost of prescription drugs has escalated dramatically. And as economists, we sort of one of the fundamental principles is that the price of something should be a function of, should be set to the actual cost of producing uh, whatever it is you're producing. Now, so the cost of producing a pill um, is probably really, really, really tiny relative to the price that the drug companies assign to it. Well, but they're, um, they're saying they're recouping their research costs, right? So they're saying they're recouping their research costs. But the other piece of it is that they, first of all, have a lot of protection from our patent system. So they have monopoly power. Uh, they can. Um, they are the only ones who have a particular drug. And if a uh, clinician decides that that is the drug a patient needs, uh, then either the patient is going to have to pay the price, and it's usually a negotiated price, not the actual list price. It's usually a price that's negotiated down by the insurance company or or there's a pharmacy benefit manager in there. Um, but some high price uh, that someone might have to pay, um, or they're not going to get the drug. Um, and what the drug companies have done is really price the drugs at a level not based on the cost of producing it, even if they wrapped in the cost of research and development. But they've been sort of setting the prices at what they think the market will bear, what people with their insurance, with patient assistance, would be willing to pay for another month of life um, or to not get a fungal infection in the case that you cite. And, um, this makes sense for them. They are for-profit companies. They have shareholders. They have boards of directors. So their goal is to make profit. Um, now, <laughs> I should it's say— a little cynical. <laughs> but it's the truth. Uh, it's the truth. And so um, 
with the current system, these prices that people face are are going to be high and are going to continue to be high and until we find some alternative non-market, not not competition-based uh, strategy. And I don't know that that's going to happen anytime in the future. But that is some of what is driving the cost growth in cancer drugs, not the cost of producing them. Um, but rather the fact that the market will bear very high prices. And yet we hear that the same, very same drugs are much cheaper in Canada or Europe or that there are generics uh, being made perhaps illegally in India that are very much, much cheaper. I mean, how, why is it so different in our country? Or am I wrong? Well, um, so in terms of the – no, you're, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, in other Western countries, countries, uh, the governments allow uh, or the governments actually may be providing some kind of national health insurance or in the case of Canada, uh, provincial uh, regional health insurance, and they negotiate prices with the drug companies. And because of that, they have a lot of market power and they can say, if you want us to make your drug available, we will only pay X amount for it. Uh, and so they have much lower prices. And they use various uh, approaches to actually setting what that value will be, but it will not be the drug company setting the price. Mm -hmm. And then once, then the drug company will have to decide whether or not it wants its drug to be sold in that country. Hmm. So um, are there examples where the drug company pulls out? Um, very I can't think of any specific, but they certainly complain a lot. <laughs> and, and, it, and it has an effect. It's, I mean, this is getting a little bit maybe off topic, but uh, it certainly affects uh, the way drug companies uh, deal with Australia, which has a very tight control on the price it's willing to pay for drugs. Mm. Um, and that probably had an impact on whether our country stayed in the uh, Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Really? So, Interesting. Yes. So is it different uh, for patients, uh, depending on whether they have private insurance or Medicare or Medicaid? Uh, you know, you, you talk about policy, and I think of policy as being made by Congress, which shouldn't affect private insurance, right? Or am I, am I wrong? Well, uh, I think the biggest impact has probably on private insurance has been the Affordable Care Act. Mm. Um, so you're right that for the most part, the federal policy would not affect what private insurers do. But the Affordable Care Act uh, has uh, required that private insurance now has an upper cap on the out-of-pocket requirements. Now, it might be quite high, but there is an absolute cap on, on the out-of-pocket uh, spending. Including on prescription drugs? Yes. Hmm. It would be the total that a family would have to face. Okay. Uh, so that's been uh, a potentially important change. Mm -hmm. um, I think that um, in the Medicaid program, uh, that's different because uh, people's out-of-pocket is really pretty minimal. This Medicaid. is usually for lower-income people, right? Medicaid is for uh, historically for people who are on what we used to call welfare. Now we call temporary assistance for needy families, uh, so quite poor individuals. Um, with the Affordable Care Act, many states expanded their Medicaid program to uh, – 
higher income individuals, but still only up to what we say is 138% of the federal poverty level. So which the is near poor. The near poor, the near poor. But it also expanded it to adults who didn't have uh, young children. Hmm. That was a previous requirement for right. adults to be covered. So now you might have more uh, near poor who are getting into their uh, 40s, 50s, don't have young children. In the past, they might have been uninsured. Uh, and now they will have Medicaid coverage. And uh, Medicaid tends to have very limited out-of-pocket, if any. Hmm. So you might have to pay $6 to fill a prescription. Hmm. That's amazing. And and I know that in Connecticut, uh, we we have a very robust, it seems that we have a very robust uh, Medicaid and uh, medical support system um, compared to some other states of which I'm aware I think that's true. Yeah. So um, how has the Affordable Care Act impacted access to cancer care uh, or the care for cancer survivors, for example? I mean, has there been, have there been measurable uh, changes? Uh, because that's, that's been a big, pretty big change in our, in our insurance system. Well, it's had an impact on insurance coverage for people uh, with a cancer history. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll say cancer survivors. Um, so people who were newly made eligible for Medicaid um, have enrolled uh, to a large extent. Um, individuals who maybe were previously eligible for Medicaid and didn't know it have also uh, enrolled in Medicaid now that there's been so much publicity about insurance coverage. And there is still in place an individual mandate for everyone to have coverage, even though there's no longer a, a penalty that's being enforced. Um Other changes, um, other really important changes is that people who have a pre-existing condition can no longer be excluded by private insurers. Um, And so that actually potentially had a big impact on uh, being able to access insurance for people who previously might have been denied uh, insurance by, if they went to a a private uh, sort of individual insurance market, uh, not through their employer. Uh, then they might have been turned down or they might have been offered a policy where the premium was really exorbitant. Um, and in, under the Affordable Care Act, these people can now get access to insurance with a premium that doesn't reflect a cancer history. Hmm. So people who've had breast cancer and are in remission or colon cancer or any, any of the above, you're saying they might have been excluded from private insurance before. Yes, absolutely. And now they can't be. Now they can't be. Oh, wow. So so has anybody tried to measure the uptake or the impact that that's had on cancer patients? Do we know that more patients have have enrolled? We know that more patients have insurance coverage, um, and we know that it's – has happened across the board for people who are eligible for um, either Medicaid or people who uh, previously could not get uh, insurance in the private market and uh, particularly people who are what we would call low income where the Affordable Care Act subsidizes their purchase of insurance premiums. There's been a lot of issues with uh, overall uh, premiums going up because now there are many sicker people who are buying insurance, and so healthier people may be facing higher prices. And people who are um, above uh, a cutoff of 
uh, 400% of the federal poverty line don't get any subsidies to buy insurance. And so they are faced with uh, the higher premiums that are now in uh, these private insurance markets. So that's been a big problem. It's a problem that could be fixed if Congress were willing to tackle this issue, but it's not been uh, something that they've been willing to tackle. Right. And then we hear about this death spiral that people warn us about, about the Affordable Care Act, but hopefully that's not going to happen. Hopefully that's not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's... it's, uh, it's really very interesting, and I, I have to say again, I, I see it every day in my, um, in my practice how these, uh, how these in, insurance issues really uh, impact, you know, people's decision making. But I, I have to say, as a consumer, I don't think that I'm particularly aware of what my insurance will cover and what my copay is. I mean, I may have general idea. So it's really complicated what we're asking people to sort of keep track of and and manage, don't you think? I think it is true. I think that uh, our system is quite complicated, and uh, there have been surveys done asking people whether they know what a deductible is um, or what their insurance covers. And people tend to have very limited understanding of that until they get faced with a serious illness. Yeah, what do you mean I have to pay $1,000 for that pill, right? Right. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Right. Um, so it is It is problematic. Uh, I think that um, it could be resolved to some extent um, if we had uh, sort of a national health system. Um, I am one of those lefty people who supports that. Um, I'm not sure, though, that Medicare for all, given how Medicare is now, is the actual solution to that problem. Because as I'm sure you find in clinical practice, the Medicare system is sufficiently complicated, as I was describing with the Part D benefit, that even though 50 million people are enrolled in Medicare, um, it's still very difficult for each of them to understand what is and what is not covered by Medicare. Dr. Amy Davidoff is a senior research scientist in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Yale School of Public Health. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.